Hello, I'm Bob Bragdon, and you're listening to CSO Executive Sessions. CSO Executive Sessions is produced by CSO Online and IDG. Each episode, we sit down with leading security and risk executives to get their take on the challenges faced by their organizations. And today, we're on the line with Christopher Burgess to talk about some of the challenges of operating in a crisis environment like COVID-19. Christopher is an advocate for effective security strategies, be they at the office or home, for you and your family. Having served for more than 30 years within the Central Intelligence Agency, he's also been a senior security advisor within Cisco, as well as running his own companies. He's the co-author of the book, Secrets Stolen, Fortunes Lost, Preventing Intellectual Property Theft and Economic Espionage in the 21st Century. The founder of both Securely Travel and Senior Online Safety, he provides commentary and writes regularly on national security and insider threat topics. Christopher, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure, Bob. Can you give us a little synopsis of your background and what you're up to these days? Uh, glad to. So um, when I was a wee boy, uh, I, uh, I truly entered on duty in the CIA when I was uh, 19 years old. And so I, I, I grew up in the intelligence arena and spent most of my life abroad. And so I look at things through a, uh, an international lens, if you will, because I also grew up abroad. My father was with the Agency for International Development, and we uh, focused on helping people help themselves. Uh, that truly set me up for what was I going to do after uh, my 30 years at the Central Intelligence Agency. And I, I went to private enterprise to help them understand how to protect intellectual property, crisis management, insider threat, and things of that nature. And since then, I've had the pleasure of being a chief operating officer for a big data company, started my own companies, and now I focus on helping people travel securely, uh, helping seniors stay safe online, because I too am a senior and I'll need this someday when my cognitive skills are totally hosed. And then um, I, uh, I also find myself uh, doing a lot of writing on national security issues and insider threats, uh, because that's my bailiwick. Uh, sure. And today I'm talking with you, so I'm tickled pink. So as we're recording this, both Christopher and I are in pandemic lockdown, along with most of the rest of the world. How's this affecting you? Well, uh, my wife and I uh, aren't preppers per se, but we've always had a few weeks of food on hand because we do live in a fire, earthquake, storm zone, and we have things called volcanoes that surround us out here in the Seattle metro area. So... We were, all, we were already prepped. So uh, what we did is we augmented what we had by a little bit. I, I can say with a great, great degree of certainty, we did not hoard all the tel uh, toilet paper in America. Uh, and uh, for us, well, we're, we're finding, uh, we're using technology to engage with our family members that uh, even though they may live near, not coming over to us. Uh, both my wife and I uh, have had uh, some respiratory issues, and so we've been uh, we've just finished up uh, four weeks of specific uh, isolation associated with that. So uh, we only go out for uh, food and uh, medical purposes, just like uh, most other people around us. Well, this whole mess is certainly throwing a wrench into travel risk. How are you seeing this play out in the near term, and how do you think it will affect long term? Well, 
as you know, I have to securely travel, and I, uh, I I put a post out there uh, not too long ago, a couple of days ago, that said um, this will be the last post. We're in hiatus. If anyone's traveling, you're putting yourself at risk. And lo and behold, like a, a cascade of dominoes, international airlines started shutting down. Qantas just grounded their entire international fleet. Lufthansa has 763 planes, and they grounded 700 of them. Uh, countries started closing their borders, the EU, United States, uh, Australia, New Zealand, everyone started closing down. So travel is going to be li limited to four wheels that you can drive for the foreseeable future. And then uh, if I'm not mistaken, this morning, I read that uh, Florida is now saying anyone flying in from New York must go to 14 days of quarantine. So we're probably going to see some domestic uh, travel restrictions. And, and that's going to uh, have a uh, significant uh, uh, effect on people moving about that think they need to move about, but really don't. You know, there, there are those that must, you know, the key members of our infrastructure, the, the supply chain that's keeping us all fed and our health in place. And then there are those that think that, well, you know, I can just do this because I got to get over to, you know, grandma's house. Right, and those are the ones that are going to be seriously affected. I I feel for that great swath of our the U.S. economy that doesn't have that option to work remotely. It, it just doesn't exist. You know, they make things, right. they do things. Uh, the classified workforce, for example, that has to be in a, inside a skiff. Well, my living room won't be a skiff. So right. uh, those are the people that are going to be uh, affected in a different manner than those in the technology world where we just go on to whatever uh, webcast uh, meet, you know, online meeting room that uh, mm -hmm. their company tells them to use. I think one of the things this incident has pointed out is the strategic weaknesses in our just-in-time supply chains. As businesses have moved more and more production, almost exclusively to China, it's actually created an inherent vulnerability, not just for widgets, but also for strategic things like pharmaceuticals and medical protective equipment. We're learning that lesson now, but do you think we'll act on that when this is over? You know, Bob, I, I certainly hope so, because the lesson has all had already been demonstrated in the military procurement world where as they started to delve into items that were being procured for weapon systems and they were finding that there were key chips that were manufactured in china that were being uh procured you know off the commercial board because they were you know they're, they're commercial items but they weren't being manufactured in a, in a controlled manner, but they were going into key instruments. That's why we, we saw uh, the CFIUS, uh, where they review ownership of companies. And for a long time, China's uh, strategy was to just buy US companies that had the technology they needed and hope that right. they could get through that, that, that oversight. And they, they were successful in some, uh, in some aspects. You know, uh, a company that might make a widget that, that goes into your washing machine might also make a widget that goes into the, uh, a tank. Uh, 
and they were very good at uh, sorting those out and trying to acquire those. The, that just-in-time supply chain, that, that's a global matrix. It isn't just a bilateral United States to China matrix. Uh, we're, we're going to feel the pain if we're not already right now in the months to come because China shut down, inventory is now depleted, China's ramping back up, but they're not gonna have a market to send, sell it to as the rest of the world shuts down. And I, I think yeah. China really did themselves a disservice by not sharing the information early on so the entire world could act as one. But mm -hmm. that's, that's personal opinion there. We've been hearing a number of stories about increased industrial and economic espionage since we've dispersed our workforces to their homes. What are your expectations about IP leakage that might emerge from the current situation? Well, on the first part, IP leakage is, uh, comes in two forms. One is accidental and the other is purposeful. So we will always have the insider threat that is uh, sitting there in front of us. and it will be realized when people decide to break trust for whatever reason they have. Then there's those who are now working remotely who have never worked remotely before, perhaps using their own devices, that, that, that uh, bring your own device uh, saw that comes into play for companies that don't have an infrastructure set up for the BYOD. They're now in scramble mode, so they're doing what's necessary to get the job done. And in doing so, you'll find that they're going to start putting things up into the cloud. They're not going to configure those databases correctly. I mean, you, you can choke a horse on the number of AWS storage regimes that have been misconfigured to allow the general public into data. Mm -hmm. right? You know, pick, it, pick an industry and they've been affected by it. Most recently, you know, it's the travel industry. But we, we've seen it in... Uh, uh, in uh, the state governments and putting voter logs up there. We've seen it in uh, companies that have their customer roles. They, they have their PII in the healthcare. They're storing it in the cloud and they don't know how to configure or they think they do and nobody double checks it. Uh, I think that's gonna be the largest risk we're gonna see as we scramble to uh, work virtually on, on a much larger scale. On the other hand, I think we're going to also see a great deal of clever innovation on dumbing down the security infrastructure so that it can actually be understood. Because I advocated for many, many years that the more complex the security structure, the more ineffective the security structure. And, and what I mean by that is I'm a human person. I, I work with people. My intelligence background was human. And the confused individual is always a vulnerable individual. And so the engineers may know how to use the system, but if the user doesn't know their part or can't understand their part, I think that's going to be where the opportunities for industrial and economic espionage are gonna to come to the forefront. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the coin, let's go to the classified world of the United States. We have millions of families, and in a piece I wrote today, uh, I talked about 
the fact that millions of Americans are now sitting at home without a paycheck. Many of them work for defense contractors, both big and small. One of the issues deal in the counterintelligence world, dealing with these insiders who are now financially vulnerable is, are you at risk? And if you're at risk of having an approach that looks attractive to you because you are now broke, your house that is in jeopardy, you've got medical bills out the yin-yang because four of your family members got sick with this virus, does this give a leg up to the nation states mm -hmm. to reach into our companies and say, I have a deal for you? Because remember, going into this, the targeting matrix or the mosaic, if you will, that had been put together by China, where they took in all the Equifax data, they took in all the healthcare data, they took in the OPM data, they took in the Ashley Madison data, they have the targeting portfolio on us already. They already have our credit reports. Now they sit back and watch because they have the list of people they're interested in and they wait for some of them to have, have a difficulty. And I'm not suggesting that any of these individuals are susceptible. I'm just saying that every one of these individuals has to be prepared for a potential approach. Right. For somebody sitting before them saying, you know, I don't want you to lose your house and I want your kids to continue in college and I've got a deal for you. And they have to be prepared how to say no, both in industry as well as in government. You know, we're also hearing stories about some suspected as well as overt nation state actors attempting to step up disinformation campaigns during this crisis. You have troll farms feeding false information through social media. And in China, we had ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian promoting the conspiracy theory that the U.S. military may have brought the novel coronavirus to China. What do you make of all these? Yes. I mean, plain and simple, uh, <laughs> Russia and China are taking advantage of the opportunity uh, to share uh, this uh, disinformation, and they share it for two, two audiences. One is the domestic audience. So, they, they are telling the domestic audience, you know what? We didn't screw up here. It was inflicted upon us by those foreign devils. Right. The other side of the equation is if we can create discord within the United States or within the United States and their allies, that's a win. Any day of the yeah. week, any topic of your choice. And the way we're seeing this play out now is two different ways, one uh, the Chinese way and the Russian. The Russian manner is they have created a great deal of online uh, media outlets. And these media outlets are writing, you know, 8,000 word pieces on how the United States military uh, transferred uh, the COVID into Europe, for example. And they're being run in, uh, you know, people into the Czech Republic, the Slovak Republic, Poland and elsewhere are reading this and they're going, yep, knew we couldn't trust those Americans. Yeah. And they're taking it as gospel. And I, I'm seeing this from my contacts here saying, you know, it's really your fault. And I'm going, oh my goodness, you know, where do you get your information? They show it to me. And I, you know, for some that I actually give a hoot about, I painstakingly show that that's a front being run by the Russians, perhaps even the GRU. The Chinese are a little different. 
they're using the power of social media in a much greater capacity in, in a direct manner where they're not even disguising their hand, where the Russians are using bots and sock puppets. The Chinese, as you pointed out, are using officials. And today they put out that, you know, perhaps this COVID actually came from Italy and from the Northern province of Italy. And that was on the, in the social networks today. You know, wow. uh, and that, that kind of surprised me because I was expecting them to keep pointing at the U.S. Yeah. But today they pointed to Italy. And it was coincidental that the number one COVID case in Italy was released from hospital today. And that was a uh, marathoner that had traveled uh, to China. And, and so you, you know, you say, is this all coincidental? And there's no coincidences in the world of national security and geopolitics. And so I say, no, there isn't. Uh, in addition, with pers perspective around COVID, I think it's safe to say Russia's sandbagging the world uh, when they say they have 45 cases. Yeah. Uh, especially when individuals, I'm sorry, they say they have uh, less than 500 cases. Uh, when the rest of the world is saying 45,000 people are in their hospitals with respiratory uh, infections. And then China, that, that figure they have, uh, I view uh, with a great deal of skepticism, not just because I view China with a, a skeptic eye, but I witnessed how they changed the manner in which they spoke about how to count cases. They in, in the course of three weeks, they changed it three times. And each time it was designed to create a smaller number. And thus numbers are relative, and, right. uh, but it's also part of that disinformation because our media, not only here, but elsewhere in the world, we're, we're fixated on numbers and stats and what percentages right. When the reality is, you and I should be fixated on what's happening outside our door, because what's happening in three states over probably isn't going to affect us as much as what's happening in our county. You know, on one hand, I guess I see the tactical benefit from their standpoint in doing that, but is it a smart long-term play for them? I, I don't. I think it's going to be a horrible long-term play. Uh, I, I think what they're going to find, they being China, Russia is a whole different kettle of fish, right? Their, their economy is already tanking and it will continue to tank. And I think uh, that's why we're seeing Putin try to consolidate his political position before uh, the proletariat, if you will, stands up and says, you know, it's time for you to move on. But in China, I think what they're going to see is a global movement to break up the global supply chain of just in time that involves a reliance on China as a trusted partner. I think they are going to see a far greater economic setback than anywhere in any other country. But you know, what do I know? <laughs> All right, I wanna close with a conversation about risk perception. Risk is generally calculated as threat times vulnerability times consequence. And I'm not sure that many actually break it down to a mathematical formula like that, but essentially that's what we do when we're evaluating risk. What's the impact and what's the likelihood? If a business was evaluating the risk from a pandemic six months ago, like what we're experiencing now, I have to believe that most were underestimating what the impact would be. 
it's a typical actuarial evaluation of a 100-year flood, right? We could have a flood this year that could shut down our business, but because we've never experienced one in our lifetime, that's, what's the likelihood that this will actually happen? But guess what? It actually did happen this year. Do you think that will color risk evaluations businesses do going forward? I, I do. I do. Uh, every multinational, be they in the United States or abroad, should have an international risk component to them where they are looking at information that's coming from foreign language sources, not just the language in which they operate. That doesn't exist for many, unfortunately. The mom and pops of the small industry world, they don't have that capability. They can't afford the new truck, let alone an international risk, but they may have international customers. The way companies will look going forward is they will try to determine whether or not the source of widgets or the source of information can be validated. And that's going to add an expense quotient to it because every country has the ability to nationalize their industry. And once that is done, then all components made by that industry goes to that country and, and it's force majeure on those contracts to export widgets. Yeah, not going to happen. So our supply chains will always be at risk while we have the international components with risky partners. Mm -hmm. But also having that window, if you will, into what's happening in the world allows you to prepare. For example, I've got a lot of time to read these days. I saw a SARS-like virus outbreak in Wuhan on January 1st. I wrote about it on Securely Travel on January 2nd and saying 30 people have been quarantined. It's a SARS-like virus and described it as it was described in the early days. This virus is breaking out in Wuhan, China. Now, if I as an individual sitting at home with only the internet search capability available to me saw it, I would think multinationals would have seen it yeah. who have much greater resources than I. I would have thought multiple governments would have seen it. I would have also thought the government of China would have highlighted it. And they did highlight it quietly to the medical community. And they, they, that highlighting was done in December. But sadly, they hid a portion of it. And companies without analysts are unable to discern whether a country is sharing information openly or sharing cookbooks. You just, we just don't have the capability to make that, that determination. There, there isn't a company in the world that has that capability. You have analysts who will say, well, based on my experience, I see this, and I say that all the time but I don't have a means to go in and validate that assertion. I can just say, I don't trust the numbers. Right. And, and I think this is, this is one of the aspects that we're going to see change going forward is 
people are always going to question the truth as they well should. But now people are going to be willing to invest in the validation of the information being shared to them so that they don't make key decisions based on unsourced or unisourced information. The power of circular reporting where there's one person saying something but it's being described by six different individuals, it's like the auto accident that you and I witnessed and we describe it differently. Right. But there was still only one auto accident. And that's what we're going to have, have to break down for companies so that they, under, especially those that have allowed themselves to have the international supply chain, is to understand that international dynamic that is outside of their view. So do you think there's a window for how long that will be the case before we slide back into our old, you know, maybe we call it bad habits? Yes. <laughs> event, amnesia, event amnesia is the bane of information security. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is. It can be data breaches, it can be equipment failures, it can be uh, insiders gone bad. As people move from position to position, they forget or they choose to forget. Our brain says, let's remember the happy things, not the, not the ugly things. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we'll have the immediate generation of the pain and that will be sharp and fierce and if those individuals stay in their positions for the the next 18 months then i think that it will be remembered but once the individuals that experience the direct hurt move on then we start having event amnesia again and then we start looking for how can i make the dollar the quickest way possible and perhaps not, how can I make the most secure product or provide the most secure service? You know, the old adage back in the heyday of Silicon Valley, back in the late 90s when I was bouncing around there, was we go to market on 80%, right? We'll figure out the other 20% later on. And, you know, and I don't know that that's changed a whole lot. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of CSO's Executive Sessions. We've been speaking with security and risk expert, Christopher Burgess. Christopher, thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure, thank you. CSO Executive Sessions shares the expertise and insights of leading security and risk executives. To learn more about how security and risk leaders are addressing today's dynamic risk environment, make sure to visit us at csoonline.com. And be sure to catch future CSO Executive Sessions by subscribing to this podcast on csoonline.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time for CSO Online and IDG, I'm Bob Ragnan. This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.